Hello, friends and neighbors. This is David Smith of Illinois Family Action with a special edition for our Spotlight podcast. Recently, I gave a Sunday morning exhortation at my church, and since we captured the audio, I thought we could post it here as a special edition for those who may be interested. In this 20-minute exhortation, I urge Christians to consider the goodness of God. God is superbly good, well beyond our finite understanding. So I pray that as we seek His face, the Holy Spirit will help us better understand just how good our God is. So without further delay, here is the exhortation. So uh, my exhortation is called The Goodness of God. And uh, in Psalm 119, verse 68, we are told, You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. In Isaiah 63, verse 7, it says, I shall make mention of the loving kindness of the Lord, the praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord has granted us, and the great goodness toward the house of Israel, which he has granted them according to his compassion and according to the abundance of his loving kindness. And then Psalm 34, verse 8 says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. So uh, recently I began to read this book uh, titled The Attributes of God, Volume 1 by A.W. Tozer. So far I've read the chapters on God's infinitude, God's immensity, God's justice, and God's goodness. Any one of these chapters could be the launching point for a sermon or even a sermon series. Uh, But in this exhortation, I want to briefly touch on God's goodness as it really resonated with me. Um, Pastor Tozer realizes that our view of God and the Bible are foundational to our effectiveness in the culture and for his kingdom. He says this, Christianity at any time is strong or weak depending upon her concept of God. And I insist upon this, and I have said it many times, that the basic trouble with the church today is her unworthy conception of God. I talk with learned and godly people all over the country, and they're all saying the same thing. He goes on to say this, Our religion is little because our God is little. Our religion is weak because our God is weak. Our religion is ignoble because the God we serve is ignoble. We do not see God as he is. Later in that chapter, he points out this. The psalmist said, oh, magnify the Lord with me. That's 34 verse 3. Magnify means one of two things. Make it look bigger than it is or see it as as big as it is. The latter is what magnify means as the psalmist used it. If you want to examine a very small amount of matter, you put it under a microscope and magnify it to make it look bigger than it is. But it is impossible to make God look bigger than he is. When we say magnify the Lord, we mean try to see God somewhere near as big as he is. Now, in the, in the mid to late 90s, people in the church began to say, God is good all the time. And the response, of course, was, all the time, 
God is Good. I'm not sure if that came from uh, God is Not Dead movie, but uh, it's easy to proclaim and shout aloud the goodness of God when things are going well. It's easy to brag on Jesus when people are coming to know Christ in large numbers. It's easy to talk about the goodness of God when people are joining the church every Sunday and the baptismal waters are stirred on a weekly basis. It's easy to declare God's goodness when our health and our finances are doing well. It's easy to proclaim God's goodness when the members of our family are walking with the Lord and practicing the fruits of the Spirit with one another. All right, but, but you know that just as I do, there are times in our lives when we allow circumstances to dictate to us how we feel about God's goodness. I mean, where is the goodness of God when circumstances turn bad and the future seems uncertain or even distressing? like it is now with this uh, coronavirus. Where is the goodness of God when sea billows roll and trials come? The word of God tells us that no matter what our circumstances, our God is good. Now that brings me to the main text for this exhortation, which is James chapter 1. I'm going to read 2 through 18. <clears throat> first, cha- first verse is a greeting from James. But starting in verse 2, it says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But if if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith, without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. But the brother of humble circumstances, there's that word humble, is to glory in his high position. And the rich man is the glory in his humiliation. That word humble again. Because like flowering grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass. And its flower falls off. And the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too, the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, It brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good gift given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. 
Heavenly Father, you have given us your word to teach us about yourself, to correct us, and to train us in righteousness. Father, you know the struggles that each of us have and what we face from time to time, the trials, the sea billows, um, and all those things that come into our life. Often, too often, we begin to question, directly or indirectly, your goodness. But as we look into your word and as we seek your face, help us to see you as you truly are. May the Spirit help us understand just how good you are. We pray this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. All right. So James says in verse 16, do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Now, I've talked about deception in in a previous uh, message. But that word deceive means to be led astray. James is getting ready to to talk to us about the goodness of God. But before he does this, he issues a warning. He says, do not be deceived. Do not be led astray. Notice that in the beginning of this chapter, James is talking about trials and temptations. But as he moves from talking about trials and temptations... He reminds us not to let the circumstances, those trials and temptations of life, to cause us to be deceived or led astray or cause us to question God's goodness. There are times when we experience temptation and we may come to God and say, God, if you're good, if you love me, if you love my family, if your intentions toward me are good, then why do I have to keep struggling with this temptation? Or why do I have to face this trial? Why don't you just take these things from me? Why must I keep fighting against it? Well, the word of God says, don't be deceived. Don't be led astray. Don't let the temptation fool you into thinking that God is not good. There will be times in our lives when we'll experience trials and heartbreak. And when we look inside of ourselves and our heart is broken and we'll begin to question God, it's when we, when we focus on our circumstances and allow them to lead us astray that we start saying things like, you know, if you're a good God, if you love me, if your attentions towards me are good, why am I having to struggle so much? And why is my heart broken? Why am I so stressed? How can I possibly find your goodness and your hand of blessing in these circumstances? Once again, the word of God says, don't be deceived. So when we're saying those things, we're being deceived. We're buying the lies of the devil. And scripture says, don't be led astray. Do not let the circumstances you're in cause you to question the goodness of God. It's, it's off limits. Can't do it. We have no place to question God and his goodness. And so James talks to us about not being deceived. He gives us some reasons that we can grasp and cling on to that we can know that God is good. In verse 17, James writes, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. So God's word tells us right here that everything good in this world is from God. If it comes from God, it is good. If it's not good, then it does not come from God. The Bible says every good gift, every perfect gift is from above. You'll notice the word gift is is used two times in verse 17. 
Now, the NSAB doesn't use it twice, but the New King James and the ESV does use it twice. It says, gift twice in verse 7, and it's the same word in the English language, but in the Greek language, it's two separate words. And they both have a separate meaning to convey, the to convey concerning the gifts that God gives us. The first word, gift, every good gift, that word, gift, stresses the action of giving. In other words, God's intention, his motivation, his action in giving to us is always good. Now, that's not true with us as human beings, is it? You and I can go out and give someone a gift and yet not really have a pure motive or a good motivation in giving it to them. <clears throat> we probably do it every Christmas. We'll go out and buy someone a gift take it home and wrap it up in some beautiful wrapping paper, place a bow on the top just out of obligation or because we know that they're going to give us a gift too. <laughs> so, so our motivation isn't pure. We really don't appreciate them all that much and they're not all that dear to us, but we're going to give them a gift anyway. Now that's the way we do things, but that's not the way God works. God's motivation for giving to us always flows out of his love for us, his perfect agape love. So every good gift, the act of giving, and then God's word says, and every perfect gift. So the second word for gift focuses on the thing that is given. And the Bible says that every perfect gift is from above. <clears throat> that word perfect means complete. We could say it this way, every completed gift, when God gives you the completed gift, it will always be good. Sometimes we don't see the goodness of God in our lives because we don't see the completed gift. We're just seeing part of it. I'm going to give you an illustration on that in a moment. But we wonder, God, how can all of this be good? Rest assured that God's word says, and we need to believe it, every perfect Every completed gift is from above. And it's a good gift because it comes from a good God. In Matthew 7, verses 9 to 11, Jesus was speaking to his disciples. And he assures them that God gives his people good gifts. He said this, What man is there among you who, when his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, corrupted, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? So how do I know God is good? Because his gifts are good. So let me give you that illustration now. Imagine if my kids come into the house after playing in the backyard, and as they enter the kitchen, they look at Natalia and say, Mom, can we have a snack? And she says, Sure. How does two and a half cups of all-purpose flour sound? What about two teaspoons of baking soda? Oh, here's, here's four la large raw eggs. Eat these. Or maybe, would three-quarters cup of vegetable oil satisfy your hunger? How about a heaping teaspoon of baking powder for a snack? 
Or what about <clears throat> a cup and a half of well-shaking buttermilk to wash it all down? <laughs> well, I know what they would say. Yuck! No, thank you. That sounds gross, Mom. But if she was to say, sure, you can have a snack, sit down at the table, and I'll bring you each a piece of cake. Okay? I know for a fact that they wouldn't turn that down. We don't realize that sometimes God gives us one ingredient at a time. And when we're standing there with a mouthful of stuff, we're thinking, God, if you're good, then why is my mouth full of this stuff? And after he gives us each ingredient, he begins to mix us up a little bit, maybe a lot of bit in the mixing bowl. And then we say to God, if you're good, why am I getting so stirred up? Then after he's mixed us up, he turns on the oven to 350, and he slides us into the oven. And we shout, God, if you're good, why is the heat turned up so high in my life? That is when, by faith, we have to take our eyes off our circumstances, our eyes off our emotional response. We look at God's word and cling to his son, not leaning on our own understanding, but believing that God's intentions, his plan, and his character is perfect, holy, and loving. By faith, we can say, God, I know that you are good, and ultimately your gifts are good. By faith, we can consider it all joy, as James says. By faith, we can consider it all joy when we encounter various trials. We can say those words which are recorded in Romans 8.28, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and to those who are the, the called according to his purpose. We know that God is good today and that he is good all the time because his gifts are good. But please notice that in this passage of scripture, we find a second reason why God is good. It too can help us know the goodness of God. And that is because his character is changeless. Look again at verse 17. James says, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Think about how the word of God describes our loving creator here. It describes him as the father of lights. He is the one who gave birth to every sparkling star in the entire universe. He grouped those stars into their constellations. He assigned their individual brightness. He framed the physical laws of the universe that keep those stars in their courses. He sustains them day by day and moment by moment. He orders the motion of all the planets and all the, the moons of the solar systems and galaxies. He is the father of lights. And you know what? He knows us personally. He knows our first, middle, and last name. He knows the number of our hair on our head. Rich prayed that this morning. Notice again how James described our God in verse 17. He calls him the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. There is no variation in him. The stars change. They change in their brightness. Some of them even move, shooting across the sky. But God never changes. He never varies. 
The Bible tells us that there is no shadow or turning with him. As bright as the moon is, there are times that it gets dark and it turns its dark side, if you will, to us. As brilliant as the sun shines, there are times that it's eclipsed by the moon or hidden by heavy clouds. It's in the shadows, <clears throat> but there is no shadow of turning with our Heavenly Father. He does not change. His light and his goodness does not diminish. The hymn writer says it this way. Great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not. Thy compassions, they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever wilt be. Praise God. God is immutable. He never differs from himself. He is unchanging and unchangeable. He says so in his word. He says, I am the Lord. I do not change. We can know that God is good because his gifts are good. We can know God is good because his attributes do not change. Let me close with a final word from Pastor A.W. Tozer. He says this, why would God, the eternal son, bleed for us? The answer is, out of his goodness and loving kindness. He quotes Psalm 36, 7, saying, Therefore, the children of men put their trust under the shadow of thy wing. He goes on to say, Why would God forgive me when I've sinned and then forgive me again and again? Because God out of his goodness acts according to that goodness and does what his loving heart dictates that he do. That he do. And then Tozer closes with this. Thank this chapter. Thank God. Thank God. Let us praise the loving kindness of God forever. For his goodness, there is no end. Amen and amen.